uh, this morning. So I was putting together uh, the, the sermon before today. There's reoccurring themes. There's reoccurring themes of um, Scripture. There's reoccurring themes in the lives of people uh, that have actually made it, that have finished their journey, that have heard well done. And so what I'm seeing now with the pattern of going through just the life of Christ as we get into Matthew 8, you and I are going to see things that are just on repeat. And so many of these truths of the faith need to be repeated. It is the same thing. I remember as, as I've grown up with uh, pastors and sat under uh, their teaching and sat under the teaching of others, that there are certain principles that if you and I will just grab a hold of, everything else will fit neatly inside or will be built upon nice and sturdy. And today you and I are going to walk through a couple of those principles again in Matthew chapter 8. As we watch Jesus walk, as we watch him interact, you know, the script every day is not different. The people, the interactions, the circumstances may change. But what guides our Lord never changes. And so you and I need to live lives uh, like that. There needs to be some things in our life that are constant, some principles that we've navigated towards, some things maybe every morning you get up and just repeat to yourself, some character, uh, some character traits that you will not deviate from, some lines that you will not cross. And I think the older I get, the more I realize that really those things are very, very simple. And I told you about 10 years ago, uh, the Lord just flattened me like there was all these different decisions to be made even before that. Like, what am I going to do with my life? What career are we going to choose? Uh, uh, what are we going to, are we going to move? Are we going to stay here? Are we going to buy this? Are we going to do this? And you know, a lot of times those details are just so overwhelming. There's so many things to process that I remember growing up in youth group, and it was always, well, you know, pray for the will of God. What's the will of God for your life? What's the will of God for you? And so many times the answer to that question is, I don't know. And then the Lord helped me out because I'm a simple person with a simple mind. And he said, just pray to bring me glory. It's a very simple request for your life, for mine. God, just put us in the position that brings you the most glory. That simplicity has really helped navigate my life. As, as crazy as it sounds, the little details just kind of f fade away. And you're left with big character traits that will anchor your day so that on Monday morning when you wake up, things are really, especially about your character and about your testimony, they are really about the same. You're going to be sturdy. You're going to be faith-filled. You're going to be loving. You're going to be sacrificial. Like if you just get up and have those things on your mind, it doesn't matter if you need to uh, choose this college today or this career today or whatever it is. The guardrails are already set, and the Lord is going to navigate you on them in a way that is broad yet very, very simple and non-stressful. You and I are diving through worried about the details when God is more interested in the big picture and the foundational things that are going to anchor us to him so that we finish this life with our testimony intact, ready to meet our Savior, and God help us, hopefully, ready to hear, well done. 
It's very broad decisions that set you and I down that path. And then as the little ones come, we navigate them properly. But when we understand what God wants to do with the big picture of our life, it takes all of the stress out of those things. Do I want to honor God? Am I going to make uh, the wrong decision at times? Yes. Is there grace for that? Yes. Repentance for that? Yes. Can God make a message out of my mess? Absolutely. But I don't have to be so worried about all the details of my life if I will just hand him the big picture. And today you and I are going to see Jesus do that. We're going to see uh, how he walks his faith out. The story of Jesus' calling is what? It is simple, it is secure, and it is strong. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 8. Where were we a couple weeks ago? Well, for the last couple months, we've been dealing with just the, the greatness of the story of Christ. Walking into Christmas, we're just going to live in his life and just be a part of that uh, as we usually would. But we started about a month and a half ago with his birth instead of waiting. But we're telling the greatest story ever told. The one that you and I need to gravitate toward. Like, what's the bar for your life? Well, it's Jesus. It's the life that he's living, which is why you can't attain it. But it's also not a burden to live that way. Why? Because God is going to empower you if you desire it. He is going to empower you to live as close as you can, as close as I can, to that life and to that goal. It's also why those that don't know the Lord don't understand how high the bar is. It's perfection. And so you and I are going to repeat through his story. We're going to see all of these areas that we think, man, I cannot get there. I will never be that way. And you need to understand that as the temple of God, the Holy Spirit living in you, he will make you more like Jesus. A couple weeks ago we talked about the idea that there are no stupid questions. Why are we here? Because people matter. Not only people in general, not only people broad, but persons matter. The people you interact with matter. That individual matters. And so you and I can make tremendous headway in this life if we will look around and not see the mass of people, but see individuals. Your child matters. Your spouse matters. Someone here that's reaching out to you this week with a prayer request or a need, that person matters. The big stuff matters too, but God cares about the individual. So the who is always people. You and I are here to deal with and to love and to care for people. If not, the moment you got saved, God would just usher us into the kingdom. Why suffer and struggle once we've made that commitment? Because God has a mission for you and I to be a part of, and it deals with people. What are we doing here? We're showing the glory of God by fulfilling his word. Your life and my life should fulfill the word of God, just like Jesus' did. His birth, his coming, his miracles, all of those things people would point to the Old Testament. We're going to see a huge one today again that is the same way. Jewish people ask Jewish questions, and we see a big one in this passage today, and I love it because you can go right to the Psalms and see a really, really cool connection. What are we doing here? Our life is fulfilling the word of God or the word of God is fulfilling us. What God's word says, as I follow, what is confirmed in God's word should be confirmed in my life. That's what we're doing. The when and where as you go. When you get up this morning and you're coming to church, when you're yelling at your kids trying to get them ready, when you're throwing them something that's in a wrapper for breakfast and saying, get out the door, like that is the when and the where. It's right now. When you wake up tomorrow and you get a flat tire, that's also the when and the where. 
When you're broke down in Columbus or broke down in Destin, both those things this year for us, two separate vehicles. Wonderful experiences. That is the when and the where. Out of your control. What are you doing, Lord? What are you doing? You stop for gas and walk inside the convenience store. When you do it on repeat, you see the same people. That's the when and the where of heavenly stuff. Changes are made in those moments. The who? Listen, friends. The broken, the needy, the dangerous, and the dirty. How is your life going to be used? Who is going to gravitate toward you if you and I are living the mission of Jesus properly? The same people that gravitated toward him. It wasn't the cleaned up and the self-sufficient. It was the broken, the needy, the dangerous, and the dirty. And even those that can't seek what God has to offer. And how? And how? In conviction and authority. You should wake up on Monday morning knowing you have a lot of the answers that everybody else is looking for, and there is nothing prideful about believing that if you got them from the Word of God. Jesus woke up every day knowing he had every answer that the world needed. You and I have been conditioned in our culture to act like everybody's ideas are on equal footing. People get grace, ideas do not. People get benefit of the doubt, ideas do not. When you wake up and you know the Lord and you're studying his word, there is nothing wrong with knowing you have most of the answers that the people around you need, that your family needs, that your culture needs. You have most of them. If you'll just read the word, you'll know the truth, you'll exercise the truth, you'll be a blessing to so many. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 18. You see, the faith that Jesus is going to live, the calling that Jesus has is very, very simple. Verse 18 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Verses 18, all of Jesus' faith, the call that is on his life is very simple. I like verse 18 because I think verse 18 sets a contrast for the next two interactions. Verse 18 says, Jesus sees the crowd and he said, let's go over to the other side. I think part of what happens next, and this is a little hard to kind of explain. I think part of what happens next is the contrast because two people come up and they make uh, accusations about themselves and what they're willing to do. And I think the context of that passage is really kind of simply this. Jesus wants to go to the other side of the sea, the other side of the lake, and they won't even go that far. He's getting ready to leave, and they're going to be left behind. He's going to do one simple thing, and I think by the time we read these first four verses, they're not interested in even going that far. So Jesus says in this passage, the crowd is coming around. He says, let's go over to the other side. The first person comes up and says, Lord, I'll go. I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And Jesus says, I don't even have a place to lay my head. If we're going to follow Christ, we're going to follow him into the abnormal, the uncomfortable, the different. We're going to be a peculiar people who would willfully sign up not to have a place to lay their head. 
the Savior you and I claim to worship did. An itinerant preacher that's going to go around and just be a part of the mission of God, going to be the image of God for us to see. He's going to illuminate so much more of the will of God and the character of God and all of these things. It's why in our minds so many times you see people talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and how they look so different. They weren't different. Jesus just gave a bigger picture. He just gave a picture of who God was in the Old Testament too. He was loving, kind, and merciful then. Noah finds favor with God. Noah finds grace with God. Right? You go on into there and there's repentance and God is merciful to the people of Israel. He's merciful to the pagan nations. He waits 400 years for the pagans to repent of their nasty, disgusting sin before he sends the Israelites in to claim the land. See, Jesus doesn't show a new picture He shows the same picture with more illumination. Who would volunteer for a nomadic lifestyle like that? Remember, that's that's part of the the glory, and, and glory is kind of a weird word, but that's part of the mystique for Abraham's life. Abraham gave up a walled city, or Abram gave up a walled city to to wander the rest of his life, basically waiting for God to fulfill his promises. That's part of the beauty of the life of Abram was he was willing to leave the comfort and the stability and the safety of a walled city of an inheritance that his father would have passed down to him. He was willing to leave all of that to follow God and be a nomad the rest of his life. See, if you and I are going to follow Christ, it's going to look peculiar to the world around us. It's going to be different. It's why some people can make a decision about a job that means less money. It's why some people can make a decision about a spouse that others would say, well, that doesn't really make any sense to me. It's why you can make a decision on a school or a career that doesn't make sense to everyone else around you. It's why the things in this world don't matter as much to us or they shouldn't matter as much to us as they do to the world. Why? Because you and I aren't clinging to them. We hold them with an open hand. Because God reserves the right to move us or to move them at any moment. And so Jesus is is preaching, he's teaching, and the first one comes up and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And I think part of the idea is you're not even going to go to the other side of the sea with me. I want to go there and you don't even want to go that far. The second piece is a little more tricky. This one kind of throws you for a loop because it doesn't feel really right. It feels kind of harsh. And I think part of that is because you and I don't understand what it's like to be in God's presence yet. We've experienced it in very small slivers. A good worship set, a good time in the Word, a good time of prayer, a good time of fellowship. God help us in a hospital room when all chaos is falling apart. There are moments and glimpses of the goodness of God and the glory of God, and you and I are just instinctively drawn into them. But I want you to understand something. As Jesus, uh, as he partakes in this passage, as this uh, scribe comes up, as this young one comes up, and he says, I will uh, go with you. And Jesus, uh, he says, then um, uh, he says to him, you, uh, let me go bury my father first. I had way too much coffee this morning, excuse me. Another disciple said to him, Lord, uh, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Man, that's a harsh statement, isn't it? Wouldn't it be sad to miss your parents' funeral? There's a couple weird pieces that go into this. Some people will say, well, this father wasn't really ready to die. This guy was buying time and waiting to get his inheritance. 
So it's like, Lord, I want to follow you, but I got a little bit of time left with my father here, and I'm waiting for my inheritance. Just let me go through that process, and then I will follow you. That's one uh, school of thought that kind of lessens the command here. Honestly, I prefer to think of it this way. If that young man's father did die and that inheritance was on the table right then, that it was better for him to be in the presence of Jesus than it was to wait for that to play out. And you and I only think that's weird because we don't understand the presence of God. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Better to be a servant in the house of God than to rule your own kingdom. And I think a piece of this, if that message is as harsh as it sounds, if this young man's father has died or getting ready to die, and Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, there is a piece of that that means, number one, there is life in this world. He is life. Follow life. It's right there. He says simply this, to be with him is better than any earthly attachment the world has to offer. Any inheritance that can't hand it out to be with God, to be poor and to be with Him, to have no place to lay your head and to be in the presence of God is far more important, far more valuable than anything this world can offer up. So what what kind of simple faith do you and I have? It detaches us from earthly things and it creates heavenly attachments. We sat in Sunday school this morning talking about the family and family of God, and that is the that is the idea of being a part of the family of God. Your earthly attachments have been disconnected, and now there are heavenly ones that are competing for your time, your love, your attention, the things that you enjoy. There are heavenly attachments now. Follow me, no matter the miss, no matter what you're going to miss. It's worth it to be with Christ, to be close to Him. Even when friction comes, the call is always all or nothing. It's simple. It's not easy. Does that make sense? It's simple. It's not easy. All or nothing. Jesus says, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. And every time I repeat that message, it makes my hair stand up. Because it's so easy to look back. Lot's wife to look back in longing over Sodom and Gomorrah and be turned into a pillar of salt. For us, not to be fit for the kingdom. Why? There are attachments that we long for, things that we want, and they are diverting our attention from the glory and the goodness of God and the the glory and the goodness of the mission that we have. Matthew 10, I'm just going to flip over one page. I'm going to read that passage to you. Number one, because we are not going to skip it, I think it's one of the most timely passages ever for the world that we're living in right now. Number two, because it fits very well with this one. Matthew 10, 34 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if we're trying to dampen down Matthew chapter 8 and say, well, this guy's trying to prolong the time. His dad's not really dead yet. He's just waiting, and it's going to be a year or two or three or five. If we're trying to, to, to tamp down 
the severity of that call of Jesus or how outlandish it sounds to us, then we're going to have a real hard time with Matthew 10. Because there is no pulling punches in that one. Haymaker, haymaker, haymaker. He who loves father or mother more than me, he who loves child more than me is not worthy of my kingdom. The attachment to God is far greater than anything you and I will have ever in this world. And those that have met him and know him intimately and needed him in the harshest of moments, they already know that. And it doesn't make them worse for this world. It makes them better. Does that make sense? When I love the Lord better, I love my wife better. When I love God better, I love my children better. Now does it make sense? He lines those things up properly. When I love him well, I am more useful to them. If I love my wife more than I love my Lord, I have made her an idol and I will end up failing her. When I love my children more than I love my Lord, I have made them an idol and I will fail them. And so for Jesus to say, if you love mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of the kingdom, he's actually preaching something that will ultimately be a blessing. Not only to your family, but to the world around you. There are a lot of people that love their mother and father, love their spouse, and love their children. And they do some good. But every person in this world that loves the Lord ultimately, first, without distraction, honors everyone and blesses everyone. Their families are anchored in and cared for. Their children are loved well. Their churches are provided for. Their communities are taken care of. And it's not because they love other people first. It's because they love God first that they are able to love everyone else better. Dr. Falwell at at Liberty and at Thomas Road always talked about God math, how when you and I honor the Lord with our finances, he does more with the 90% left over than you and I could do with the 100. He, he made a, a living off of that idea, teaching people to be faithful in tithing and giving and watching God bless. And there were testimony after testimony. I think the Lord does the same thing with our time and with our love. When you and I honor him first with our time, I think he does more with the other 90% than we could ever do. When we honor him first with our love, he takes that and multiplies it over everybody that you touch. As God math gets all crazy and outside the realm of reality, God love, God commitment, God time does the same thing. He makes you and I better, more loving, more useful with the amount of time we have left when we honor him first with whatever it is that we have to give call of Christ is all or nothing in a day like today I would I would beg you all to read that passage again I'm not going to jump through it much but I would beg you all to get in that passage again and to realize for yourself what does it mean when Jesus said I have not come to bring peace but a sword we live in a culture that is okay with certain pieces of the Christian faith they're not okay with others you and I need to realize that we need to be living out both. Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, which means there is going to be adversaries to the message that he has to offer, and they're going to be even in your own home. As much as it is required of you, be found at peace with all men. Some men and women don't want peace. 
you and I need to deal with that and stop trying to be peacemakers, even with people in your own home, family members that don't want what the Lord has to offer and they continue to try to cause chaos in your life. You need to figure out that this is by design. You are light, they are dark, and they don't like it. Jesus himself said, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Look at uh, verse 23 with me. You are shielded, not safe. It's free, not cheap, what God has to offer. You are shielded and not safe. Verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and saying, What sort oh, then he rose and rebuked the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I love verse 23 initially just that he's going to cross, he wants to cross, and they follow him. I think that's a part of the contrast of the verses we just read before. The scribe that found out there would be no place to lay his head. The other one that come and said he just needed time to bury his loved one. I don't believe either one of them have followed him across the sea. I think that is a piece of what's going on here. The contrast of you're telling me you want to follow me wherever I go and you won't even make this first initial step. Or you want to follow me, you just need a little more time to make the decision. There are those that follow. And 23 says they followed him. And what happens next? Listen, friend, there's going to be no miracles in your life until there's obedience. No miracles until obedience. The things you know to do, do them. There is, God is uh, so gracious with his mercy for the ignorant. And I don't mean that like a derogatory term. Not knowing something. God is gracious. If you woke up one morning and you became a Christian at the age of 35 and you had all this time to build all these bad habits, if God in that moment opened up to your mind and heart all the things you did right in that moment that dishonored him, it would kill us. You would not be ready for the road ahead that was going to take you uh, down a place to look more like Jesus. You wouldn't be ready for it. The thoughts, the actions, the words. But God illuminates through his word, through other people, so that baby Christian gets a chance to crawl, and they get a chance to walk, and then they can run, and then they can run that marathon, and then they can hear well done. But it doesn't start in an instance. Why? Because God is gracious with ignorance. And that is a a glory-filled, beautiful fact of the story of the cross of Jesus. It covered all my sins, the things I repented of, the things I didn't because I didn't know them, the things I did that dishonored him that I didn't know and would eventually know. It covered all of that. So here's the point. Jesus says, get in the boat. That's all they have to do. What you know to do, do it. And if you will, you'll see God do the things that he gets ready to do next. There are no miracles without obedience. And that obedience is just the first step of the thing you know to do. Tomorrow you might have to obey something a little differently. Maybe God has changed your perspective on something. He's pierced your conscience about something else. And so tomorrow you wake up and you say, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And you just move on. And 50 years from now, when you're to be like Jesus, there'll be other things that he shows up that the Holy Spirit shows you, and it's just part of the growth process. 
Right now, you're only required to obey what you know to do. The things you know that are right and good, do them. Verse 24 and 25, there's storm, there's the storm, there's the danger, and there's the peace. And you know what? All three of them are real. Friends, Jesus doesn't mock our issues in life. He doesn't smirk at us or chuckle at us that we're having trouble dealing with this or dealing with that. God is very clear throughout the whole Word of God that He deals with us like frail and fragile people. And for you and I, that should be something that is wonderfully comforting. He realizes we are just dust, broken, frail, and easy. Easy to knock over, easy to have a shaky faith. I, I love the passage of Scripture where the guy comes up to Jesus and he's, and he's begging for help, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that a raw and good faith? That's part of what's going on here. You and I see there is a real storm, there is real danger, and there is real peace. I don't even think it's the waking up of Jesus and the save me that frustrates him and has him rebuke them next. I believe it's the very next couple words. Jesus, save us. We are perishing. Can't stop the will of God. Jesus is on a mission. It is not the will of God that he sink in a boat and all of those in the boat with him if they'd have just woke him up and said, man, there's a crazy storm, save us, there would have never been this rebuke. But to finish it with the exaggeration or to have our fear take us to a place that is out of control and say we are perishing and Jesus just gets up and says, no, we're not, we're fine. Calm down. Rebukes the storm, everything is cool. I think God is showing us a piece here that he is uh, willfully able and, and, and willing to deal with our faith where it is. But when you and I embellish or exaggerate or something else, we end up getting into the, a realm where we have not a childlike faith, but a childish faith. A childlike faith would have woke their dad up and said, Hey, we got issues. Can you fix them? We got issues. Can you help us? A childish faith throws a fit, demands this or demands that. It doesn't like hardship. It doesn't like being pushed back against. It doesn't like that they haven't had to be in the storm in the first place. It thinks, well, you should just wipe these things away and be done with them. That is a childish faith. It's what children want or how what you and I are supposed to disciple them and love them and discipline them out of. Because if they grow up and they're still 30 and 35 and they act like that, you and I say we want nothing to do with them, neither does their boss or their spouse or their own. We need a childlike faith that wakes dad up and says, I heard something, can you fix it? Something's wrong, can you look at it? When you call your dad, something's broke, can you help me fix it? That is a childlike faith. A childish faith runs to exaggeration. Let's fear take over. It dishonors the person that they're making the request from by not understanding all of their knowledge, all of their skills, and how they take care of business. I believe that is the dishonoring part of this. Not that they woke Jesus up, not that they said, save me, but that they finished it with, we are perishing. Verses 26 and 27, Jewish people ask very Jewish question. Who is this man that does God-like things? 
Psalm 65, by awesome deeds your answer, uh, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Who is this man that calms the seas? That the storms listen to? How about Psalm 107? Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. What has just happened? Jesus has put the fingerprint of God on their life right in front of them. Because the answer to that question, who is this man that the seas or the storms listen to? These people would have known the Psalms, and the Psalms say it is God Almighty. So what is Jesus doing in this moment? He's looking at the crowd and saying, I am God. Even the storm obeys. The sea obeys. I am God. The Lord. You see, your faith is shielded, but it is not safe. You are totally secure until the Lord is finished with you. Until He is done with your life, there is nothing that can touch you. Until He is done with the mission that you are on, there is nothing that can happen to you. Psalm says He has our days numbered. You are unstoppable until it's time to go home. Living in a culture like ours right now that has been so overtaken by fear and hysteria. And, and it's merited. But Christian, you and I should be grieving this differently. We should be reacting to it differently than the world as a whole. We should be reacting to all this fear and all this newness of the idea that you and I are mortal human beings. We should be reacting to it a little bit differently than the world. With faith in your calling. Faith in in your God. He is on the throne. Other places in Scripture would say even the worst that can be done to us just sends us home. That is a hard lesson to learn, and you and I are learning it on the fly because for so long it's just been the norm that we were going to be 80, 85, we were going to see our grandchildren, maybe our great-grandchildren, we were going to have a retirement, we were just going to live on, and we were just going to roll out peacefully in bed and roll right into the pearly gates. Right? We're the only generation or the only two generations in all of human history that ever felt that way. Your crops don't come in, you're in trouble. The warlord next door is angry and wants to take it out, we're in trouble. That is the story of human history. If it don't rain, we're in trouble. That is the story of human history. 
And you and I are learning it on the fly, what our ancestors knew the moment they woke up and realized life was hard. We're learning it on the fly. Dive into this moment and get reacquainted with the God of the universe. Let him work through your fear and bring you closer to him. That's what's going on in the boat. Finally, look at verse 28 with me. When he came to the other side to the country uh, of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Your calling is strong. The truth that you and I are living is accurate, but very few are ever going to applaud it. Now that's hard to deal with. It's accurate, but very few will applaud it. It's accurate to live by the moral standards that God has put forth, but very few are going to applaud it. Do you understand what happens now if you start to live it? There are going to be people that react against it. But your calling is strong, and it's strong because it's built on truth. Verses 28 to 32, there is no earthly match for the strength of the faith that is within you. There was no earthly match for the strength of Christ walking his feet on this world as he went along. Nothing could come against him that was more powerful than him or what was in him or the mission he was on. Couldn't stop it. So what does Jesus do? He walks toward the demon possessed. You better believe there were people saying, listen, man, people don't go this way. There are some really crazy things that go on here. Don't go this way, Jesus. Let's go somewhere else. Just a five-minute walk around and we'll be fine. Or a five-mile walk around. We'll be fine. And Jesus, no, he goes that way. But other people do not go. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. He walks away. Others refuse to walk. Then what happens? Darkness finds him. There are three things in this passage. Darkness responds to light. The darkness shows up and approaches him. The darkness calls him out. Listen, friends, if you are living your life as the light of Jesus Christ, darkness will find you. Darkness will call you out. It will tempt you. It will push you. Why? Because everywhere you go, you're giving it less room to hide you down. Evil people, evil things, frustration, even the other side of, of this cosmic war we're in will show up and push back against those that are living as light and love in this world. Darkness responds to light. The darkness shows up, comes in, and approaches Jesus. What's next? Darkness loves death. They also know the heart of God. If you're going to cast us out, Lord, cast us into the pigs. Really weird passage but there's a lot of, of symbolism here pigs were unclean animals the jewish didn't couldn't be around them or anything else so cast us out into the pigs don't just cast us without the opportunity to cause just a little more havoc and a little more death they know the heart of god and so they call out to be put into something where they can do just a little more damage 
Why? Because God loves people and he's getting ready to rescue two. He's getting ready to rescue two. Verses 33 and 34, what happens? There's a good deed and a good God and a bad reaction. Friends, are you living in a world where there are good deeds and you serve a good God, but there are just bad reactions? So did Jesus. He heals two demon-possessed people. He just, he just made safe a whole section of, of the city or right outside the city for people to travel and to walk through again. Why? Because he just took two demonically possessed people and he cleansed them. But yet there's a bad reaction to that. Why? Because people are fearful of things they don't understand and people also love darkness. If you are living out your good deeds that look like God, and you're living out your good deeds that, that show a good God, there will be bad reactions. There will be bad reactions at work. There will be bad reactions at school. God help you. There will be bad reactions on social media. Right? They're going to eat your lunch, cancel you and your church and your family. But it is the response of an ugly, dark world when Jesus shows up. That's the kind of faith you and I need to be living right now. That's the kind of faith that you and I need to be, um, it just needs to be a part of who we are. Everywhere you go, things ought to get better. I know that sounds really simple, but it is the absolute truth. When you and I are living and loving the Lord properly, everywhere your foot goes, it gets better. There will probably be chaos because of all the things we just talked about, but every place Jesus went got better. Light and love were there, and so things got better better at a bare minimum they got to see what it looked like to be a part of heaven you go into work in a bad place those people ought to see what it's like to be a christian which means it ought to get better you've brought the light and you've brought the love of god with you even if it causes friction and causes chaos light and truth are always better than darkness and lies jesus does that but he pays a price his calling is your calling. His calling is my calling. It's a simple faith. It's foundational. You can build your life on it. It's focused. You deny secondary uh, portions of this life, secondary things in this life you and I ought to be able to hand over just at will. That attachment should be so loose to so many things that other people want in this world. You and I ought to be able just to hand them off. My hope is coming. My palace is coming. Right now, I am required to love and lead people. And so these secondary commitments, we can just let them go, and it looks so peculiar to the world. You have a secure faith. It is not safe. It is never safe, but it's totally secure. You are not done until the Lord is done with you. And you have a strong faith. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. As they come this morning to play, we see these reoccurring themes constantly. It's simple, secure, and strong. There's truth that you can't bend or deviate from. These are the things that will set your life up so that not just tomorrow looks good, but 10 years from now look good. These are the principles that create that opportunity. You build off them foundationally. They are so secure that no matter what your life tries to put on them, there's enough room and enough stability to build off of them. Truth, faith. 
When you're fearful, you take that to the Lord. When you're, when you're uh, uh, thinking things that aren't honoring to God, you take them to Him. You repent, whether it's fear or worry or some other temptation that's brewing. There is a simple and secure and strong faith that will navigate every tomorrow until you and I meet Him. You see it in Matthew chapter 8. As Jesus interacts with these people and He loves them properly. He points out that there is a focused and foundational faith. It is very, very simple. It is not easy. There is a secure faith laying in the boat. Jesus is totally peaceful. Why? Because he knows the God of the universe. He's just going to ride that storm. The disciples freak out a little bit. I think God gives us some leeway there. But don't panic. Don't let fear consume you. The enemy loves that. And finally, in all of this, you have a strong faith. Nothing you come against is going to overcome what God has to do. As they play this morning, if you need something, you come. If you want to pray, you come. Uh, God is big. If you want to repent, if you don't know anything about the Jesus that we're talking about, it's time to talk to someone and deal with that and work through it. There's so much more to life than just existing. There's so much more to this life than just getting up tomorrow and making it. You and I need to tap into that because your family needs it, your community needs it, your church needs it. We need to know Him better.